Uh, you might go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ephesians 5. What a good and important message that God in the Bible gives us over and over and over and over again. Do not fear. Uh, that's where the message will end this morning after we cover some uh, interesting lessons from uh, the last five months. In our last episode of Life Lessons with, from COVID-19, we focused on these five truths. Number one, we live in a fallen world. Number two, life can change very quickly. Number three, church is not confined to a specific place or schedule. Number four, people still need each other. Number five, less is often better. So stay tuned for the compelling conclusion of Life Lessons from COVID-19. And now... Part two. And as you can see, I've always wanted to be a TV announcer and never got to. So. <laughs> Today we look at the last four lessons that we learned. And I wish on my outline I had done six, seven, eight, nine instead of one, two, three, four, but uh, that was one of my several oversights this past week. Uh, but there are obviously other things we could have included that were not in the five last week or not in the four uh, today. Uh, things like the fact that we have learned over the last four months, five months, that people can be really nasty on social media or in person if they disagree with you. <laughs> Another thing we have learned, I hope, is the importance of still having joy and laughter and the importance of compassion and the importance of perspective uh, through all these kind of things. Uh, we've also uh, learned that there are lots of opportunities to bless and encourage others when there are crazy times and crazy things going on in the world. And one, maybe one of the first lessons we all learned during the uh, COVID situation was the uh, incredible value placed on a roll of toilet paper, or maybe 100 rolls of toilet paper <laughs> in somebody's closet. Uh, I read early on, this was like early on in, in the whole, this whole thing, someone wrote, years from now, history teachers will have to explain how a guy in China eating bat soup led to a toilet paper shortage in America. <laughs> well, I want to put up two comics here. Uh, that, that, these are both from local papers uh, over the last uh, few months. And they have to do with, you know, the first one has to do with the whole working from home and all the shut-in, or uh, the shutdown. Anyway, the guy's got a jackhammer busting his floor up in his house, and his wife is saying, I don't think they mean that everyone should work from home. <laughs> okay, and then, and then the other one, the husband and wife are sitting on the couch one evening, and she says, I need a break from the 24-7 coronavirus news. Anything else on TV? He goes, I'll check. So he looks, and he says that, 8 o'clock is the mask singer, followed by outbreak, panic room, and the untouchables. <laughs> Can't get away from it. Um, what a time in which we are living. And uh, hopefully uh, we see that it's a time we can learn some things as well. want to read the same verses we read before last week's message, although I'm not going to talk about them. We're only going to read them once. We read them all through the message last week. But Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, in light of all these lessons and things, says to us these words. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Well, first lesson I want to stress, and this is absolutely the Lord's will, and that is that spiritual growth 
is our personal responsibility. Now, we should have always known that, but I hope over the last five months that that has reinforced that thought uh, to you and me. In 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, uh, this is Peter's second epistle. And again, Peter was the guy, you, you'll recall, when he first met Jesus, who was pretty out of control. And he drastically changed and grew in his faith over the time with Jesus and then the time between then and when he wrote these epistles. So it's striking to me that this man who changed so much and grew so much in his own faith writes this as the last two things he said uh, to people in his epistles. 2 Peter 3, 17, Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. He seems to suggest in his last two words that he says to us in his last epistle, that we are either going to be growing in our faith or we're going to be falling away. It's pretty much one or the other. And basically it's up to us which direction we're going to go. There's a similar warning that the Bible gives in, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 that's uh, a little more specific about uh, not falling away and, and why. 2 Timothy 2 verse 14 through 18 says... Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. <laughs> it is of no value and only ruins those who listen. And verse 15 is a very famous verse. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Now one translation says something about study to show yourself approved to God. And then it goes on, it says, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Verse 15 says that you and I ought to get, every individual Christian ought to get to the point where we correctly handle the Bible where we know it enough that we can handle it ourselves on our own. And thus, the verses around it, we can then avoid meaningless talk and false teaching because we know how to handle the Bible properly. And then we can also avoid moral failure in our own life because we know how to handle the Bible properly. Now, obviously, we who are church leaders are to try to help every Christian in this process. But ultimately, it comes down to the effort of individual believers on whether they grow or not. Now, before March 15th, we, every Sunday, would offer 9.30 Bible classes for all ages. 10.30, we would have this worship service and, and a message. At 6 p.m., uh, most of the year, we offer youth groups and classes, and sometimes there will be other various classes or opportunities. But then, on March 22nd of this year, everything changed. We did not meet in person for 10 weeks, so everything we passed out as a church was online or through email or, or you know, something. And that eliminated in-person encouragement and instruction. We talked last week about how important the in-person stuff is. But from the very first Sunday, March 22nd, when we went online, we encouraged you as individual Christians to take responsibility and be creative in your own setting, in your own house with the worship. 
Um, even though we were going to provide a message and maybe a communion meditation online on Facebook or on YouTube initially, we still encourage you to have your own family service where you can maybe involve different members of your family and do music on your own if you wanted to sing together or play music or whatever. Do your own communion time. Uh, let different people participate and read. And I was encouraged early on as, as several families did that and, uh, and have, have their family members involved in, in different worship their own homemade worship service. Because, see, I saw as our role to provide supplements to help you do that, not to do everything for you. Because we didn't want a situation where all you had to do was just flip on the TV and lean back and let someone else do everything. See, we learn a lot more by thinking through things ourselves. We ought to know that from every aspect of life. We learn a whole lot more if we do some things for ourselves. So here's my question for this church and for the church in general. Is it possible that in the church, we sometimes help people too much by doing everything for them and not expecting enough personal effort? See, I've seen parents do that through the years, that do absolutely everything for their child, even as the kid gets older and bigger and older and bigger, they keep doing everything for the child, and all of a sudden the child's, 20, 30 years old, and can't do anything on their own because their mom and dad have always done everything for them. Sometimes church leaders can make that mistake of doing everything for everybody. 1 Corinthians 3 describes a situation where Paul's writing to Christians who had not grown up because maybe that had been the case. It says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. These are Christian people he's writing to. He says, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready yet for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. And then over in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6, there's another passage that says much the same thing, and he really slams them pretty good because they weren't as mature as they ought to be. And other he's saying, you know, you've been Christians for a while, and you ought to be able to understand a lot of these things, but you don't? That's what he says. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you, are, you no longer try to understand. In fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers. In other words, you've been a Christian a long time, he's saying. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use, now catch this, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. In other words, the mature have, have, have been have taken the responsibility for their spiritual growth on their own and done something about it on their own. And then he says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God and instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. He's saying they should have known God and the Bible a lot better than they did. So my question is, is that you? Have you been a Christian for at least three or four years? <laughs> or maybe three or four decades? And don't know a fraction of what you ought to know in your spiritual life? See, over the years, I've had several people say to me, I wish I knew the Bible better than I did. And that's good <laughs> that they wish that. But most of the time, it has been somebody 
who seldom read their Bible between Sundays, they seldom attended a Bible study class, and they made it no priority. It's no wonder they did not know the Bible like they wished they did. They made it no priority. Now, isn't that a bit like the person who lounges on their couch nine hours a day, gorging themselves with unhealthy food, and then they turn around and say, I wish I could become an Olympic uh, marathon runner? Well, not going to happen if you don't take the steps to do it. So 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. God expects his followers to read, study, and use the Bible he gave us and to grow spiritually, and he expects each of us to do a big portion of that on our own. So I urge you, do not remain in biblical kindergarten forever. Do not remain in biblical kindergarten forever. Spiritual growth is our personal responsibility. And I hope that you have taken some of the last few months, especially the two months when we were shut down, and you've taken some initiative and you read some things on your own and you studied some on your own, or you went and got those Sunday school quarterlies that were laid out there for a long time. So you could have still had Sunday school uh, even without a teacher in this room. Now, I promise to help you all I can to answer questions, to offer resources, but ultimately your spiritual growth is up to you, and my spiritual growth is up to me. Let's never forget that. Here's the second lesson I, I think we can and should have learned from the last five months, and this is going to be my long point, heads up. Discernment is vital. Discernment. That's not a word we use a lot or enough. It's not a word some of us understand. What is discernment? To discern means, by definition, to mentally separate a thing from another thing uh, by careful analysis. In other words, it implies careful thought and close examination and critical thinking. Discernment. Discernment is the opposite of simply believing or accepting anything we hear without really examining it. In other words, we say, we make a statement or something, and someone asks us about it. We, well, I read it on the internet. Well, it's got to be true then, you know, on the internet. <laughs> or I, I saw it on the news, so it's got to be true. <laughs> Lady admitted in Reader's Digest recently, she said, when I was young, my parents taught me to not believe everything I saw on TV. But she says, now I have to teach my parents not to believe everything they see on Facebook. <laughs> see, over the past five months, I have become far more skeptical about stuff I see on TV or Facebook. Folks, we have got to be discerning. The fact is, many, many qualified medical personnel have disagreed sharply in their beliefs about coronavirus, the treatments for coronavirus, quarantines, and masks. And thus, it becomes virtually impossible to do what everybody's saying, follow the science. Well, who's science? <laughs> so the point is, we have to each be discerning. Individually, in our families, as a church, we have to be discerning. Which includes getting our information from more than one source. Listening to more voices, that's being scientific. Because again, 
these verses in 2 Timothy, keep reminding them of these things, warn them before God against quarreling about words that is no value, ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but who handles correctly the word of truth. Are you discerning? Are you discerning when you're on the internet or watching the news or watching a political convention? Are you discerning? And are you aware that every person in any of those settings has some kind of an agenda? You know, I have an agenda this morning <laughs> to communicate. We all have an agenda when we say things and when we write things. And we ought to be discerning about the agendas that everyone has. Do you recognize false teaching when you see it? Are you discerning? See, we must seek and demand truth. Turn with John chapter 8, because there Jesus says some of his most strong teaching on truth, and then he draws a contrast with falsehood. John 8, 31 and 32 says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth. But then a few verses later, starting by verse 44, he confronts the religious uh, hypocrites, and talks about how they're following the one who's not the truth. Verse 44, he says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now, notice how he describes Satan. Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. See, speaking to people who did not recognize him as the truth, they're listening to all kinds of other things. And if you have not noticed, in our fallen world where Satan is gaining more and more influence, we have to seek truth diligently. We need to have our radar up for lies and distortions and deception. So let's not automatically accept what we are told. We live, as I said last week, in a fallen world, and there is no person on this earth that's infallible, including me and you. No person, no expert is infallible. No fancy title can make a person infallible. See, we now live in a culture that actually, or that actually attacks and mocks the idea of absolute transcendent truth. And that's why a few weeks ago when we talked about justice, we looked at Isaiah 59. And this, these are chilling words, and I think they describe our society in America today. It says, so justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. In other are going after the people who do the right things. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. Why was there no justice? Because they lost truth. They had become a dishonest society. And thus, people had to be discerning to know what to believe. So, folks, we have got to think for ourselves and ask questions. It is not wrong to be skeptical and to ask for more proof. There has been far too much deception and manipulation of statistics in the reporting of COVID-19. I believe that as sure as anything else I'm going to say this morning. There has been deception and manipulation with numbers. And therefore, I think we need to be discerning and we need to ask a lot of questions. 
like why are certain statistics emphasized and others hidden? Or why are certain medicines and medical uh, reports ignored or even mocked or censored from Facebook? Why are so many people refusing to hold China accountable for their blatant role in the origin and spread of this virus and for their cover-up? And why is the World Health Organization complicit in their cover-up? Why were Kroger and Walmart allowed to remain open throughout the shutdown but not smaller groceries and stores? And why have we not celebrated the lack of an outbreak among Walmart and Kroger employees? I never heard of one anywhere in the country, an outbreak, even though the store stayed open throughout the time. Why were liquor stores, tattoo parlors, and marijuana shops considered essential when churches were not? Why were abortion clinics considered essential when many so-called elective surgeries were not? Why were some small business owners arrested for trying to reopen their own stores, but just a week or two later, rioters were not arrested for burning and looting stores? That's a fair question. Here's another fair question. Why were so many prisoners released from prisons or jails in the name of stopping the virus instead of just giving them masks to protect them in their quarantine cells? How about this one? Why is it safe to stand in line six feet apart at the store or the bank, but somehow it's not going to be safe to stand six feet apart in line in a voting place? And here's the two some may not like. Why did we basically shut down the entire world for a virus that has a 99% survival rate? Or a 99.98, I've heard most places. Or how about this one? Is it really about protecting public health, or is there something else much bigger and deeper going on? I think everybody will be asking that question. So let's take sensible, sensible, loving, compassionate precautions, but let's be discerning. And let's never be afraid to ask questions. That leads me to my third one. I hope we've learned from the last three months, four months, that freedom is worth defending. The whole concept of freedom begins in the first chapter of the Bible. And it begins in that famous verse that I've, I've read these verses a lot. Uh, we did this in, in the Sermon on Race a while back. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is where it describes that God created mankind in his image, male and female in his image. In other words, in his image means that we're created as spiritual beings. God's spiritual, we're spirit. But we're also, it also means we have been given intellectual capabilities. And we've been given the capacity to learn and create and do positive things for others. And we are given the ability to determine right from wrong. All that's wrapped up in the idea that you and me are made in the image of God. So God created us in his image so that we could handle freedom and benefit from it. God loves freedom. God absolutely loves freedom, so he made us so we could handle freedom by making us in his image. So let me make this statement. Freedom is only possible and workable within the context of a biblical worldview. I want you to really think about that. Freedom is only possible, it'll only work within the context of a biblical worldview. Well, what's the biblical worldview say? Biblical view, here's the quick highlights. 
Biblical worldview says that there is a personal self-revealing God who created the heavens and the earth. And that same God made human beings in his image with dignity and potential and worth. No matter who we are, no matter where we live in the world, it's true of all of us. We then, though, fell into sin and thus separation from God. So God communicated to us through prophets and other ways, reached out to us, and eventually sent his son to redeem us from our sins. Those who follow Jesus are who make up the kingdom of God, and someday Jesus will return. There will be a ju final judgment of every one of us, and there will be an eternity in either heaven or hell. That's the biblical worldview. And I believe every one of those things, 100%, as sure as I'm standing here. But folks, if you remove any of that biblical worldview, freedom will not work. Freedom will not work. Freedom will descend into anarchy and chaos and then absolute control by the state. And that's why through the centuries, when dictators and despots have sought to gain control, they have undermined three things. They've undermined the authority of God, they've under undermined the authority of the Bible, and they've taken away the freedom of religion. Every culture in history, when, when some leader has tried to take over an area and take absolute control, they've tried to undermine those three things. Because the Bible and God are a threat to anarchists and dictators. And that's why when I worked in six different communist nations in the 1970s and saw firsthand communism, socialism, Marxism, uh, there's a lot of overlap with all those, those people saw... The, the government saw the Bible as a threat to their philosophy and to their power and their control, so they wanted to limit the spread of the Bible in their cultures, which is why we had to sneak that stuff in. <laughs> but that's been the same throughout the ages with pharaohs, with Caesars, with emperors, with dictators, with various kings in Europe. They fight against the authority of God, the authority of the Bible, and freedom of religion. And that's why Franklin Delano Roosevelt made this uh, observation. He said, where freedom of religion has been attacked, the attack has come from sources opposed to democracy. And that's what we've seen with Mao in China, with Stalin in Russia, with Hitler in Europe, and with Castro in Cuba, even though they've tried to redeem Castro's image in our country in the last year or so. These were men who fought against the authority of God, the authority of the Bible, and freedom of religion. And thus Horace Greeley made this astute observation in the 1800s. He said, it is impossible to mentally and socially enslave a Bible-reading people. He said, the principles of the Bible are the groundwork of human freedom. And see, that's why the Bible is a threat to many people and to many power-hungry dictators and leaders. The Bible's a threat. Because they know if you and I know the Bible, we'll stand for freedom. And that's why religious freedom is a threat to those kind of government leaders. And that's why the phrase one nation under God in our pledge is a threat to those kind of leaders. What did Jesus say in John 8? He said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. On down, he says in verse 36, speaking of himself, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And see, America's founders, despite their flaws like us, they were, they were not infallible either, but they understood this basic idea. And thus they put into the Declaration of Independence to help make us a nation that were created equal, endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. 
And the point there is those rights, those freedoms given by God are unalienable. In other words, no one else can take them away. If God's who gave them to us, he's the only one that can take those away. The only one. And then 11 years later, when they wrote our Constitution, there were some who had some issues with the Constitution as it was. They said, we're not going to sign it because it's given the government too much power. It's taken too much power away from the individual citizens. And thus, four years later, in 1791, they added the Ten Bill of Rights, the ten, first Ten Amendments, the Bill of Rights, to limit the power of government and to give freedom to individuals. And thus, the First Amendment... The First Amendment gives five freedoms. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to peaceably assemble, and freedom to petition the government. And in my view, and I said this a few weeks ago, all five of those freedoms in the First Amendment have been threatened in the past five months in the name of safety and health, and that's not okay. That is not okay. Ronaldo Pearson commented on our time that we're living in right now, and he said, we are now the first generation of Americans to see our country become less democratic. Saw this post on Facebook. If, if the government can suspend your rights any time it deems something a crisis, then you don't have rights. You have permissions. And then the one I saw just last night says the coronavirus will come and go, but the government will never forget how easy it was to take control of your life, to control every sporting event, classroom, restaurant table, and church pew, and even if you're allowed to leave your house. See, people that want all power and all authority, they're never going to forget this. This is how easy we can control them. And that's why Benjamin Franklin warned us all those years ago they that can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. He says, if you can't stand up for freedom, you don't deserve freedom. Daniel Webster said, God grants liberty only to those who love it and are always ready to guard and defend it. See, we are made in the image of God, so freedom is worth defending. Always. As believers. And that brings me to the last one, which is very connected with that one. And that is that fear can be destructive. I don't know if you know the name John MacArthur or not. He's a preacher I've long admired out in California, a great teacher. Uh, he's been in the news lately because against the edicts of the emperor of California, I mean the governor of California, he, um, he has said, our church of 7,000 people is going to start meeting again because that's what we're called to do as, as believers. Even though the governor has, you know, forbid services and singing in church and even home Bible studies for a while, they were trying that one. And John MacArthur's church went back to meeting two or three weeks ago. And he made this interesting comment that connects these last two points. He says, you don't need an army to conquer a nation. You just need fear. You just need fear. Because, folks, then you can control people and get them to give away their rights because they're scared. And the American media has done a marvelous job creating and perpetuating panic the last five months. They've been really good at it. But 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us this very clearly. It says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, or some translations say a spirit of fear, 
but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. In other words, a spirit of fear is not from God. (laughs) A spirit of fear is not from God. God wants his followers to be courageous, not fearful. Because fear paralyzes, and fear kills dreams, and fear leads to rash decisions that are made without discernment. A couple quotes I thought were interesting about fear. Fear is the lengthened shadow of ignorance. (laughs) And this one says, fear is the dark room where Satan develops his negatives. Fear. The one I really like is a variation, I think, of something Max Lucado said. Fear is a form of spiritual amnesia. (laughs) Fear is a form of spiritual amnesia. In other words, we forget God. (laughs) So we get panicky. We ignore his power, we ignore his goodness, we forget his promises, we forget his faithfulness. And then we become fearful. A.W. Tozer was right when he said, A frightened world needs a fearless church. A frightened world needs a fearless church. 366 times in the Bible, God tells us, in some form or another, do not fear. It's one for every day of the year and one for leap year. (laughs) I like how Aaron Chambers strung together several of those passages in an article. He said, when Abram started to doubt that he would ever have a son, God said, do not be afraid. Genesis 15. When Moses and the Israelites found themselves facing King Og of Bashan and his army, God said, do not be afraid. Numbers 21. When Joshua was preparing to battle the city of Ai after previously being defeated by them, God said, do not be afraid. Joshua 8. When the Israelites were facing the king of Babylon and his army, God said, do not be afraid. Jeremiah 42. When Mary was told she was going to be the mother of the Messiah, the angel of the Lord said, do not be afraid. Luke 1. When Joseph found out that his virgin wife was going to have a baby, God said through an angel, do not be afraid. Matthew 1. When Jesus was trying to prepare his disciples for the last day of his life, he said, do not be afraid. John 14, 27 that Dwayne referred to earlier. And when Paul was being persecuted for preaching the gospel... God, wanting to keep him, or wanting him to keep going and telling, said, Do not be afraid, Acts 18. See, God has proven over and over and over and over again that he is faithful, so he tells us, Do not be afraid. Dr. Carl Menninger commented that fears are educated into us and can, if we wish, be educated out of us. Is it time for you to be educated out of fear? See, that healthy education begins in Scripture and by trusting God. The God who is bigger than any giant we face. So let's live with courage and hope. And let's live with faith. And let's live with purpose. And let's live in freedom. And let's live life again. Let's live life again. Let's live it with Jesus Christ because he's the key. And if we have him, we can face these things with confidence and caution at times, but with hope. My friend Sean McMullen wrote an article where he listed some of the freedoms Christians have. He said, we're free from sin. And he quotes Romans 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. 
It says we're free from accusation, and he quotes Colossians 1. It says we're free from condemnation, quotes Romans 8. We're free from the fear of death, and he quotes Hebrews 2. He says we're free forever, quotes Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. God has always wanted his people to be free, <laughs> to live in freedom. And that's why he made us in his image, so we could exercise that freedom wisely and not live in fear. Bottom of your page is what I had at the bottom last week, but I've added something to it. Last week, we had this at the bottom. Jesus is still Lord, and we're not. I hope we've learned that from the last five months. But here's the sentence I want to add to it. Jesus is still Lord, and we're not. We need to follow him with wisdom and courage. Wisdom and courage. We're going to be singing a song about coming to God's altar. You think back in the Old Testament with altars, it was kind of a place of connecting with God. Uh, not how sometimes the word's used today, but th this idea of this altar was made in memory of something God had done. And we would continue to meet him at that altar. <laughs> meet with God. And there's also the aspect of the Old Testament image of altar of sacrifice. That when I literally go symbolically like, the Old Testament teaches to the altar, to God, I'm offering a sacrifice. <laughs> so I'm offering the sacrifice of myself that Romans 12 talks about. I'm saying I belong to him. I'm sacrificing myself completely because I trust him. He's going to take care of things. So when we sing the song about coming to the altar, remember that image. We're coming to his presence and we're laying our lives before him on the altar saying, I belong to you completely. And that's really what accepting him is all about when we confess our faith and we repent you know we're laying the old life burning it ending it to begin a new one do it his way baptism symbols symbolizes that action <laughs> uh, burial and death and burial and resurrection to a new life so as we sing this song let's think about our heart let's think maybe, maybe with a lot of us it's just thinking we, we need to be more courageous and uh, i think we're going to be called on to be more courageous in the next six to nine months in this country than we've ever had to be before and we need to be ready as the people of God. So let's begin that process today of being ready as we stand and sing.